Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 1st of May 2020. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. They've and separated on, us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and on today's show, May Day, Australia's economy is three months from complete breakdown and how to defuse the intergenerational debt bomb. Lisa, before we begin, what we're about to go through is, um, underpins the extreme importance of our policy idea for an emergency national investment bank. We're going to go through a, an analysis of the economy that is um, terrifying, and we must turn this around. This is unacceptable that it's allowed to become like this, and we need to invest in turning it around. That's right. So the first aspect of that is May Day. Australia's economy is three months from complete breakdown. And we're referencing a report here, which was put out on ABC 7.30 on Tuesday night, uh, which reviewed a uh, Defence Department planning report, a secret report, uh, where they were planning for an increasingly likely crisis, which could have come from any number of sources from, for instance, climate change, a global power conflict likely between the US and China, or a pandemic. Uh, and what they concluded was that within three months, our economy would basically fall apart with essential services failing. And this is because of supply chains and so forth and other things that we'll go through. Now, uh, they cited Cheryl Durant, who was the director between 2015 and 2020 for preparedness and mobilisation at the Defence Department. And last year, they, she worked with 17 senior engineers from the fields of healthcare, electricity, fuel, water, mining and telecommunications, um, where they ran a scenario based on a number of questions, one of which was, can the national supply chains and our national infrastructure support defence in a war or other crisis? And the final engineer's report was chilling. Uh, their scenario, which included a disruption to trade in particular and disruption of shipping and intense competition for, uh, to secure international supply lines, stated that Australia would suffer massive upheaval within one week due to job losses, social unease and public and industrial hoarding. And in particular... Which they turned out to be true. <laughs> well, exactly. We've seen that. Uh, and in particular, they pointed out the fact that at least 90% of Australia's specialist medical supplies being imported, uh, they would be exhausted within days with severe repercussions for public health, which is, of course, a particular note in the crisis we are in. And they said within a fortnight, with a restriction of imported medical equipment, health care would be degraded. And you can, we'll put up on the screen this chart, which goes through some of the other things. So this is from the report that was issued from uh, this scenario that was run last year. Uh, so you can see there that specialised medicine shortages were one of the first things to come up. Water treatment systems failing within a week because of the fact that we import 
virtually all of the chemicals that are required for water treatment, and this prevents disease in crucial sites across Australia, in hospitals, building developments, meat processing plants, mining facilities. This stops things like Legionnaires' diseases from breaking out and so forth. So that, that was the shocking one to me because I think we'd, thanks to the way the pandemic has erupted, we, everyone was aware of the vulnerability of our medical supplies. Um, they talk about fuel as well, right? And there's yeah. been a lot of, a lot of focus on the vulnerability of our fuel supplies. But to see how deep the vulnerability goes, including to this area of water treatment chemicals, and you don't, well, these are the sort of things you don't think about on a daily basis. But if you don't have them, if we don't have this infrastructure that, that allows us to have cities that are hygienic, right, we are courting real disaster. And that's what we've been doing. So people tend to think, Elisa, when you talk about an economic crisis, they straight away think, oh, the, what's happening in the financial system? What's happening in the banks? Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's not the economy. That's the financial system. The, the real economy is, um, while everyone's been worried about the financial system, this is what's been going on in the real economy. And now we're, we can see it for what it is. Mm, yeah, and, and things like transport are crucial. I mean, 98% of our trade depends on foreign-owned shipping. So that's one big factor. Uh, and then secondly, fuel, uh, our dependence on, on petrol being brought in from overseas is a big factor. And they talk in this chart here about liquid fuel shortages within one month affecting logistics, but then within two months, liquid fuel supplies being exhausted where you have literally a shutdown of freight yeah. and passenger transport. I mean, and think about our dependence on trucking, for yeah. instance, rather than having rail wow. systems that are efficient for transporting goods and services to supermarkets. And the consequences of, this is, this is not in the chart, but the consequences of that breakdown in, in fuel availability, the, the, the scenario predicted rioting, you know, massive social unrest, as people, you know, it's, it's not like, it's much worse than now where, where people are thinking, where's my food going to come from? Yeah, we, we've all right. seen the um, problems we've had within electricity supply. Imagine under this kind of a scenario what would happen there and telecommunications. Well, well think, think about it when we, in the, you know, the shops are now back to normal, mostly back to normal. Coles has lift, lifted the restrictions on dunny paper. Um, but go into those shops in the last few months, go into those aisles where there's no toilet paper, and you know people were overreacting, but you still feel afraid thinking, I hope they bring some back soon, yeah. right? All the medicine aisles, right? All yeah. the hand sanitation aisles, those sort of things. We weren't able to buy soap for weeks and weeks and weeks, right? And you think, I hope they are going to bring it back soon. What if that was in the food aisles, yeah. right? Think about the public p panic that we've, we have. This is self-inflicted vulnerability thanks to the way we've decided to run our economy. Mm, exactly. Uh, and I just want to run the last minute or so of the 7.30 report because one of the things that these um, experts actually stressed was that we can't just go back to what we were doing before after this pandemic uh, passes. And the two speakers here to introduce them are the former Deputy Chief of the Air Force, John Blackburn, uh, and then also Cheryl Durant, who I mentioned, the Director for Preparedness at the Defence Department. The report predicts that within three months there would be no transport. Australia would be racked by social unrest and widespread unemployment. And industries like electricity and telecommunications would be failing because they rely on imported parts. In other words, our nation as we know it would cease to function. We need to redesign critical parts of our supply chains and that means it's not only having a capability in Australia to manufacture or produce something, 
And in those critical areas, you also have to have Australian ownership and or control over critical capabilities. We're smart enough to do something about it. If only we just wake up. If we take the attitude, I think, as she'll be right, go back to business as usual, bounce back, I think we're going to find ourselves not as well prepared for what happens next. So, you know, it's critical that we begin to um, shock-proof our economy for the future and in this week's alert service, which, by the way, you can contact us for a complimentary copy if you haven't already, there are two articles in there uh, which we discuss and one we issued as a media release yesterday, uh, the kinds of upgrades that need to happen to the physical economy. And we talked last week a bit about infrastructure using the example of the Hell's Gates Dam, part of the Bradfield scheme that can be immediately start to be built. And there's various other shovel-ready projects that are good to go. There are other things we can immediately do to transform the economy from getting things like canneries running again for fruit and seafood, other packaged food, which a lot of the world desperately needs right now, uh, petrochemicals industry, which is being discussed under the National um, COVID Council that's been set up, production of things like the chemicals for water treatment, fertilisers, our own shipping industry, um, and also things uh, that are laid out in the alert about improving the healthcare system on a permanent basis, because a lot of the improvements have been makeshift. But what we need is the credit uh, i.e. the cash to go into these layers. The, 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 the speakers in that video, um, especially uh, uh, the ex-military person Durant, said, you know, we, we don't want to... Um, the thinking, oh, if we bounce back, let's go back to business as usual. We actually, we actually have to stop that. We, actually, we have to recognise this was an extreme vulnerability, self-inflicted, We've got an economy that operates on, as a permanent level, on, on a permanent basis, three months from catastrophe, right? This is nuts by any measure. We can't let that happen. And that's where, so our proposal is right now, don't wait, don't say, oh, let's see how things happen, what things look like when the dust settles down. No, the government, the federal government has a bank. It's called the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. It's allowed to invest in clean energy. Expand its powers. We've drafted the, the, the amendments for it. Don't let it still invest in clean energy, but expand it to invest in all infrastructure and industry. Say to the people in Australia who have had, there's a lot, I had a discussion yesterday, Elisa, with someone who's involved in high technology engineering here in Melbourne. And he was saying, he was telling me about the, he was describing the pent up potential that exists out in Australia among people who, who are engineers and in engineering firms who've got all kinds of ideas. He said, they're half mad, these people. They spend all their time thinking about their product and how to make it better than anyone else's product. They hate thinking about money, right? They never get any, hardly ever get any backing for it, right? If, if someone does fluke some backing, usually someone, someone sweeps in from overseas and, 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 and um, takes them out of here for production overseas, right? And, and we lose it to Australia. But give, he said, we've spent $400 billion just giving it away. He said, give, give a thousand engineering firms $5 billion, right, to share, say, just spend it, not on, not on cars or houses, you spend it on your firm, make something, right? And he said, a lot of them will fail, but 10 of them will become bigger than BHP, mm. right? And, and this is industries for Australia. And these are people that are already, there's a, apparently there's a massive demand already in Australia for local, he, he described how the place where he gets aluminium from. Um, they can't keep up with demand. Why? Because everyone's trying to source locally at the moment, right? Um, that's, it, it's taught, the country's being taught a lesson here 
And we have to take advantage of that to get a lot more local things happening. And it's not like we can't compete. We don't have the backing. We don't back our industries. And their same government pretends China's trying to take us over. They back their industries. We should, instead of crying about them, right, let's back our own industries in Australia. And this is what the CEFC can do. Parliament sits in two weeks' time on the 11th to the 14th, right? They could amend that CEFC with the, with the, the amendments we've put up. They could amend that. And we could be off to the races straight away, right? In, firms could be starting productions, employing people straight away. Mm. That's what we need. So this is a mobilisation we're on at the moment. We've put up all the information on our website. Please get involved. We need you to contact your Member of Parliament, your State Member of Parliament, or your, or your Federal Senators, or your local councillors. This CFC can fund industry. It can fund infrastructure, right? We can transform this economy. Not because, for, not for the hell of it, because we desperately need it, because up the moment we operate on a system where we're three months from catastrophe. Yep. And we have to turn that around. And you can download a four-page PDF on our website, which has all the material and information you need and to circulate to your yeah, local that's members. Yeah, that's for emailing to members of parliament. Get it everywhere, please. Yep. Now, we'll be right back shortly to discuss the debt that's accumulated through this crisis and what we can do about it. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. We're now discussing how to defuse the intergenerational debt bomb. Now, this is a very important discussion because this is all the, the worry at the moment, right? And one of the things that gets said is that, now, put aside whether the government should have borrowed as much money as they did. Let's just assume they, they should have, but, you know, I don't think they should have. We would have had a different approach, but they borrowed all this money. Um, our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids have to pay this back, right? This is, this is what they've been saying. Well, there is the truth, that the, while there is an element of truth to that, what we have to talk about, Elisa, is making sure that we do something with that debt so they'll have something to pay it back with, right? That's the other side of the equation. That's right. And I, I wanted to uh, quote a University of Melbourne researcher who's weighed into this debate just recently in a couple of articles on The Conversation and michaelwest.com. His name's Warwick Smith and he's making the point that, look, debt is not the end of the world. And again, like you just said, it depends what you do with the debt that is going to um, determine the impact of that debt and whether you can pay it back readily or not. And he uses the example, and we'll put up the chart that he used, um, of World War II and that in the post-World War II period we had of course the highest debt that this country's ever seen and yet it's well known. Still as to a, this day the highest debt. Yeah and yet it's known that post-war period as a period of the greatest economic boom we've ever seen at the same time and as he shows on the chart governments on both sides of the political sphere ran continual deficits in this period however the level of debt to GDP fell, it kept falling as we ran those deficits. Um, and you even had the, ca the case when Menzies came in um, that he saw unemployment beginning to rise. He wasn't inclined to go with that kind of a policy and yet he did it because he knew... Well, well Menzies, you can see on the chart there, Menzies ran one surplus and it led to a spike in unemployment and nearly cost him the election yeah. and he never ran another one. That's right. That. But that's not... The point is what... The debt, while, while they were running deficits, counterintuitively, 
the debt went down. Mm -hmm. and, th and this is what Smith said about it. He said, this counterintuitive miracle occurred because governments weren't focused on paying off the debt, but were instead focused on productivity and full employment. And he said Labor leaders like John Curtin and Ben Chifley figured that if the government could bring about full employment during the war, then they could bring about full employment during peacetime. So if you look at how we transformed our economy during the war in order to fight the war, and that in included things like um, ramping up manufacturing on a very um, rapid scale, uh, those are the kinds of things that they decided had to be continued after the war and which made an impact that meant that you had strong growth, including strong wage growth, an increasing standard of living, falling inequality uh, that translated into benefits for every man, woman and child. Now, Elisa, it's very important to understand the context, though, between of what was actually happening in the economy at that part of the chart, that part of the graph, right? Because... The Keynesians would say, oh, see, just run de deficits. It's not that simple. There was, it was not, um, the Keynesian idea is just as long as there's pockets in the money of people, their spending decisions will make the economy going forward. And it's rubbish, right? As, as we've long said, money is an idiot left to its own devices. It's, it spends its time at the casino and the racetrack. Um, you've actually got to make it productive. And so we've got a chart here that actually gives you, uh, so I want to give you some three ingredients that were happening that, that are not captured in that chart. The first ingredient is the Bretton Woods system was in place. And the Bretton Woods system was a system of fixed exchange rates. Everyone was connected to the US dollar, which was, which was tied to gold. It wasn't a gold standard where you, all the money had to be one to one or four to one backed by gold. It was a gold exchange system where there was always, a, you could always value, you could see the value of your currency, how it was tracking to the value of gold, right? And it helped keep the governments honest so they weren't just splurging and printing lots and lots of money. There was, that, there was that connection there. But it was also a very stable trading system for the world, right? There was a lot of stability in the trading system and that helped. There was a lot of long-term investments. In fact, I remember my, my father keeps talking about this, how um, his first loan was a 30-year fixed interest rate loan that he got. He was able to get in the 1960s. 30-year fixed interest, right? Incredible. Who, who, who would imagine that today? Well, it's because you didn't have fluctuating currencies and those sort of things. Um, that was one of the elements. Second element was the debt. The World War II debt was huge. A lot of it was owed to Australians. That was from the war bonds they'd been issuing like mad in the, in the war, right? And by, by, by owing the debt to yourself, as the government was servicing it, that was money staying in Australia. That's why we said the other week, if, if, if Frydenberg has to go and borrow all this money, at least only issue the bonds to Australians. There's lots of money in, in super funds, right? So that when you're paying it back, it stays here instead of going overseas. And the third thing was this chart, because this is what was, as the economy was growing, because what those deficits did, what was happening then was the economy was growing. What was growing in the economy though? Mm. Not casinos, right? Not tourism, bless its soul. This, manufacturing. Look at that mass. That was what was growing from the start of World War II right away, all the way up to the 60s, into the mid-60s, right? That's what was growing. That's what the economy was that was allowing us to make wealth in this country and was um, taking care of that debt. Because you've got to contrast the post-war debt, handling of the debt, with the pre-war handling of the debt, which had been done under the Lyons government, which was all done through fierce austerity, harsh austerity, and um, uh, budget surpluses, right? Yes, and that got the debt down as well, but didn't, it, was a, it was a smaller debt to start with, and it didn't get it down as much as the debt after the war. 
The issue is what was the economy doing and it was manufacturing. That's what we've got to do. That's right. We've been um, saving something like a billion dollars a month from going down slot machines over this current period. Yeah. Do we want to go back to doing that yeah. or should we put it to something more useful? Now, we'll be right back. We've got to take a break to discuss the uh, historical precedent for how we can get debt down. Welcome back to the Citizens Report where we're discussing how to defuse the intergenerational debt bomb and we want to take a little uh, historical diversion here to look at a similar scenario where the United States was faced with a mammoth debt at the end of the Revolutionary Wars and under George Washington's government, the first Treasury Secretary of the United States, Alexander Hamilton, devised a way to do that which has since become known as Hamiltonian economics. But little used in the world today. Lisa, I just got, I got the figures that Hamilton had to deal with. So that the war was over and America had 42.4 million in debt owed to Americans, 11.7 mm -hmm. million debt over, owed overseas, right, which was, um, and then tw the states, that was, the states owed $21.5 million, hmm. right? And what Hamilton did with that debt was, he, the he, basis of, of the new American economy. Yeah. He raised a new loan to the total value of those state and federal debts. And he raised the loan from the existing debt holders. He basically who, asked them to roll it over mm, on better terms, though. Yeah. They were asked to turn in their debt certificates in exchange for new debt certificates at a lower interest rate. And they accepted the deal because it was a better deal because Hamilton prioritised their repayment. He actually, um, in the Act of Congress that was passed to authorise the debt rollover, put provisions to allocate tax revenue to paying back the debt. Furthermore, he tied the new loan directly to the means of repaying it by investing it in the building of the nation. And such was the confidence in these um, new debt certificates that debt holders could actually trade those certificates for money. And Hamilton then established a national bank and it was capitalised with $10 million, $2 million from the government and $8 million from subscribers. And those subscribers who were ordinary citizens could pay for three quarters of their subscription with those same debt certificates. And in that way, the debt was leveraged into credit to fund the building and rebuilding of the economy. And Hamilton wrote copiously about this, Elisa, we've, we've, we've published lots of reports and quote him, where he talked about what he was doing was establishing the credit of the United States. And basically he, what he meant was establishing America's credit rating, really, right? We are, we, we, you can rely on us to pay back our debts. The first bill that the US Congress passed was a tax act tied to, as you said, to repaying the existing debt. But the people took the deal because they, didn't, they weren't sure they were going to be repaid the debts. And he said, no, you will. And that guarantee made the American debt as good as gold, right? And that's why they were then able, it was able to be used as currency. If you had debt certificates, people instead of having to, people would take a, your debt certificate in, as payment in lieu of a piece of, of, of gold or whatever, right? That was just as good because it meant they trusted the government would honour that debt certificate, right? And they were able to then, like you said, um, use that as the basis for subscriptions of the capital of, the, of this national bank and invest in it. I want to... People like Abraham Lincoln followed through on this idea. 
This is a quote from Abraham Lincoln in 1932, just when he got into politics. He said, I am humble, Abe Lincoln. My politics are short and sweet like the old woman's dance. I'm in favour of a national bank. I'm in favour of the internal improvement system and a high protective tariff. And that describes the American economy at that time, right? This, this, the American system, the Hamiltonian system. Take the money, have a national bank invest in internal improvements. And that's what we're trying to do now. That, that same approach, use a public bank to invest in internal improvements for Australia. Hence our mobilisation on the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, right? It worked then, it'll work now. Get involved in the fight, please, and mobilise with us. Contact us for more information. And thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Robert. Join us next week.